nearly a year ago that we released our very popular Stay on Target episode where we took a look back at the target novelization range. And what better way to revisit this topic by talking to someone who actually penned a novelization of their own screen story? Andrew Smith, welcome to 42 to Doomsday. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Can we say g'day? You can. Well, I... I, I <laughs> and I'll see Hootsmorn. I did hear Janet Fielding this afternoon say Drongo in a uh, an Andrew uh, Smith penned story. So, yes, I think we can say g'day, Mark. Is this your first time on an Australian podcast, Andrew? I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, no, that, no, I did one... Oh, God, I can't... No, it's not, but I can't remember the name. I thought there's a guy, uh, Benjamin, probably a guy called Benjamin. In, oh, in um, um, uh, Preachers. Yes, Preachers yes. Podcast. Preachers Podcast, thank you very much. I am, I am going red here. I should have remembered remember the name, sorry. Oh, dear. I'll edit that name out afterwards. <laughs> he's, he's I've done an Australian podcast. Yes, I've done an Australian podcast. Of course I have. Preachers Podcast, yeah. Just as a first first question, Andrew, um, As far from what I understand, you, you wrote the story full circle and then you you moved on with your your life and your career and you sort of were, were not away from fandom as such i'm sure you're interested in the show mm. but coming back to it you know i think in 2010 i would be right in saying that when full circle was released on dvd you sort of well re-emerged would be one word to use what do you think of organized fandom you know with with, with podcasts and conventions and stuff like that oh i think it's great and i'm a huge huge fan of uh, podcasts i think it's the the new radio um and it's great that fans uh, of this show and then others, you know, you know, get together and and communicate their their ideas and share ideas and thoughts and reviews and everything else uh, about Doctor Who and all the other fandoms. I think through podcasts, I am the biggest biggest fan of podcasts. I listen. I mean, I listen to a lot of stuff during the week, but I I um you know podcasts for me I think is a new radio, uh, and it keeps up a very high standard, including this show. It's it's kind of if you like the public the public face of fandom. And it's 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 that accessible thing. I mean, when I was a teenager, I mean, I joined the Doctor Who Appreciation Society when I was fourteen, after going to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool in nineteen seventy five. Uh, so well, well, in fact, thirteen then. But um, uh, I wasn't aware of any. Group, I think there were Doctor Who local groups, but I wasn't aware of any. And the Doctor Who Appreciation Society for me was just something. That, you know, I got a newsletter every month or a couple of months or so, and I you know submitted a couple of written things to that um but that to me was fandom fandom was kind of at a distance whereas podcast you know puts podcasting puts fandom in your ears podcasts are really the evolution of the old uh, newsletters and fanzines aren't they absolutely absolutely yeah and as i say keep a really you know across the board a, a really high stand and you know cross country as well i mean you've got diverse mm-hmm. opinions from the us and canada and, and the uk and there's a couple of uh podcasts started up uh, in australia as well so and there's one in yeah. new zealand so we're all getting on it and it's great i mean as as a brit kind of brought up where the, you know doctor who is a british institution um it always and it still surprises me the amount of support that there is and love for the show that there is in other countries especially so far away in play australia and america you know i went to the gallifrey convention in los angeles couple of mm. years ago 3,000 people you know wonderful cosplay and such love for the show um and some of the most prominent podcasts as well you know the radio free scarrow the memory cheats and um two minute time world and that you know they're all you know north american um mm. uh and, and people talking about again their, their love of the show from when they were kids again not just having you know discovered it or rediscovered it with uh, what we're calling new who but going right back to the classic series. 
yeah, that is uh, that, that's really quite something for a show that is I've always thought kind of quintessentially British, you know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you mentioned um, I think we'll, Mark will go all the way back then to when Andrew was a mere lad. Um, <laughs> not a mere lad. That's, all, a, that's all, a long time ago now. <laughs> we've all, we've all set the way back machine, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark and I think we're born in the early seventies, so we're we're not too far behind you, uh, Andrew. No, not too far. No, I was sixty-two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as I understand it, you—you, you, um, I mean, you were a fan from an early age. I, th- I believe mm. uh, Patrick Troughton was was the, the the doctor that caught your eye. I suppose at a very early age. Would that be right? Yeah, he's the first doctor I remember. I mean, I was born a year and a bit before the show started in July '62. Mm. I, I, I was born, um, uh, so I, I guess you know would have watched William Hartnell as a very young kid. But the, Patrick Troughton's the one. I first remember, and certainly was you know that was Doctor Who that I wanted to see every week. I remember Yeti on the Underground and Cybermen and the Quarks. I remember the Dominators. I had a dream or a nightmare about Quarks. I remember as a kid, it's probably the first dream that I remember having. Um, and I, I, you know, I loved the Quarks as a kid. Um, uh, and Jamie, of course, he had this you know this, uh, young Scottish lad as his companion, which was perfect for me. Um, uh, and that for me is the, you know the quintessential Doctor companion pairing along along with Zoe. Uh, yes, yeah, so very very fond memories. Um, and kind of, and and yeah, followed it was something I you know I you know I, I remember missing or being at an aunt's when an episode of the Demons was on and we had to sit at the table to have dinner, and I remember being gutted you know and I, I could hear the episode <laughs> and I <had> kind of <laughs> glancing on my my shoulder. We couldn't see. I, you know, I remember as a, whenever that was, I'd be about ten, I suppose, and being really disappointed. But I, so it's something I watched every week, um, and then, like I say, in October '75, I went to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool at the time when the Planet of Evil was on, and at the end, there was a shop at the end, and I discovered they had Target books, which I'd never heard of before, and I bought three Target books: the Daleks, the Cybermen, and the Abominable Snowmen. I think it was, or no, or um, or the Giant Robot. And um, and really got into the books and and then started doing a thing where I would like audio record the episodes each week and write them up as my own little novelizations if you like. So that was kind of taking it if you like to the next level and getting interested in the the history of the show and the um, how it was made and how it was, particularly how it was written uh, and how the stories were told. Were those novelizations the reason that sort of fired your interest in writing, or had that come up well before that? Oh, that came up well before that. I mean, I I think I, I got a typewriter for Christmas. I think when I was about seven or eight, um, and I, I I used to just write all the time, do my own stories, and uh, and and again sometimes I get do this. I mean, I would the thing of audio recording. I do that with other shows like the Sweeney. I remember um, uh, and other things. Just and I deliberately just trying to get a feel of the structure of a story and what dialogue looked like on the page. Um, uh, because I had those writing ambitions fairly early on as well. Um, I just loved to do it, and I always just felt compelled to write, really. Was it uh, fiction books that you were mainly interested in, or was it writing for television or radio that's particularly fired your interest? I think t- writing for television or radio was uh, pr- what I was aiming at, although I always have been and always will be really interested in prose as well. But, yeah, in any medium, but what I was looking at really was... yeah. Uh, Dramatic writing, yeah. The um the thing I found with I mean if you if you read a script it's effectively I suppose uh, stage directions and you know dialogue. Mm. How do you and then of course you've got a book and the book is, is is a much more expensive world. How do you 
or how did you then, I suppose, sort of fill in the gaps in being able to convey a story through a script? Did you ever give any? Have you ever given any great thought to how how that's done? Or I don't. I don't think it's how it is in the page. I think that you start from trying to understand the medium and how to make best use of that medium, whether it's visual or audio, or prose on the page, uh, and understanding how things are made. You know, I mean, when I was asked by Big Finish to write for them, one of the first things I asked David Richardson, the producer, was, "Could I, you know, could I come along to?" One of the recordings, so I went along uh, to the, stu- uh, the studios in Labrick Grove to see a uh, recording of uh, one of Nev Fountain's stories, actually. Ne- Nev and uh, Nicola and I are good friends now, and um, so they were recording Perry and the Piscon Paradox um, at the time when I was just about to start writing my, f- my first script for Big Finish. And um, it's just useful to just see the mechanics of how they actually... Uh, put a big finish recording together. I remember uh, listening to an interview uh, with you where you said that you picked up a, a book on writing for television, I think, in the mid-'70s. Was it by Malcolm Hulk? Would that be right? Or Terence Dix or something like that? It was. Yeah, it was written by Malcolm Hulk. I've still got it. It's called Writing for Television in the 70s. And what happened was I sent a script in to Robert Holmes um, and he, he wrote back and gave us some supportive notes and comments and things. And also he sent me a, a little flyer recommending this book which was like my Bible, really. It was uh, really, really good. At a time in particular where um, it wasn't that easy to find out how to format a TV script. You know, now it's so easy. We've got software and you just automatically, um, uh, you know, you t- it will present as, you know, the script as it should be written and the layout and whatever. Back then... It, yeah, it just wasn't easy to hold the scripts. And this is a book that was full of excellent advice in both how to write and structure a story, a script, uh, but also had several um, examples of scripts as properly you know, laid out as it would be in different formats, so like BBC, ITV, or writing for film series, like at the time Department S and Jason King. Um, it also had part of, a, part of the script for um, uh, Carnival of Monsters, uh, by by Robert Holmes himself in it, um, uh, yeah that that was yeah that 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 book was at my side for for years. As I say, I still have it. I mean, given given your your age back then, I mean, how were you? How were you? I mean, you were pitching for for, for Doctor Who, and you I think you were pitching for mm. other shows as well. Yeah. Um, how, how were you treated? Can you recall? I mean, did they know that you were you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen at the time? Uh, they become aware at some point. I don't know where. I mean, it, it's it's funny. I was asked in an interview by Radio Free Scarrow a couple of years ago, you know, did I mention my age when I wrote in? And I, it hadn't crossed my mind before. It was a really, really good question. And it occurred to me, no, I didn't. Um, and and why would I have done? And I think, mm. uh, I mean, I, I came, to, I, I was invited down by Douglas Adams when he was script editor to come down to a, a meeting and a chat with him and see the recording of Creature from the Pit. And I did that. So obviously I turned up there, and at that time I'd have been 16, I think. Um, so then they become aware I was like this this young guy. Although I, I was always taken to be older. People always mistook me for being in my early 20s at that age. No, no sense of what the other were in, quite happily. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, and I, I, yeah, so at that point, yeah. But I, 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 mean, I don't even know when I spoke to Chris if he knew quite what my age was and but it, it was never a factor for me for me I was just sitting down and, and writing you know from about 14 15 saying all right I'll write a script and I'll send in and see what they think um 
and my age was just in, in my head it was just never ever a factor you know I certainly wouldn't have thought oh, I'd better leave this for a few years until I'm in my 20s or something no mm-hmm. um, it's uh, it was just I, I've, I, uh, I'm writing I'm writing stuff I want to see if anyone's interested in it I'll send it off to Doctor Who and I was started writing comedy sketches for BBC Radio um, uh, which was the, the first stuff I had produced and um, yeah, as far as I was concerned, I was just like anybody else. I was writing, sending it off, seeing what people thought, and as I would have done if I was twenty-four, or never mind fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. I know that. I mean, I do. I do some fiction writing myself, and I know even now, for these number of years that I've been doing it, every time I get a uh, an acceptance, I still get a, a special thrill, even though I'm sort of a, a jaded mm. mid forties. Um, <laughs> I mean, back back then when you were sort of you were pitching and you know sort of being rejected, uh, and I mean, were you, obviously that's a that's a great experience building uh, period in your life. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, when you received your first acceptance, mm. I mean, how did you, how did you what was your reaction at that point? The first thing was a radio sketch, and it would have been seventy eight, I think May seventy eight, uh, I think. Um, I say I know it was May because I just looked up the BBC genome thing to find where the show was broadcast, but I can remember it was May and I can't quite remember the year, funnily enough. Uh, but it was a comedy sketch for a show called Weekending, which was a topical show that did comedy sketches on the week's news. And I wrote a comedy sketch about sex education in schools that had been in the news that week. And I wrote four sketches. I wrote four comedy sketches. I sent them in. And I, but I didn't know it had been used until I was listening to the show on the Friday night, late at night, about 11 o'clock, half 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, and suddenly David Jason was speaking my words. And I was listening <laughs> to my room and I just started jumping around. Fantastic. You know, so that was an odd one because the first time I knew was that. And then there's some other stuff that, w- that was taken up. And uh, that led to uh, being asked to some, submit sketches, some of which were used for TV comedy shows like Not the Nine O'Clock News, Three of a Kind, became a staff writer on a show called Kick Up the 80s. Um, and, and the Doctor Who thing, I mean, I've told this story actually that... Um, I spoke on the phone to Chris not long after he became Chris Bidmead, not long after he became script editor, and in that conversation, I got quite deflated because he said, "You live too far away. We can't do it. It's not practical. You just live too far away." But I tell you what, come down and we'll have a chat about writing and where you could go from here and get into writing and all that sort of thing. And then he seemed to forget that because then I walked in the office and um, he said, "Yeah, what we're thinking of doing is we'll commission you for the first episode and see, and see what we think." And of course, I'm just like, "Wow, wow." <laughs> Thinking I was just, you know, that he'd kind of pulled the shutter down on me writing for the show and suddenly he'd tell me, you know, I, I had um, you had a shot at it. You must have been pinching yourself at that point. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. And inside my head there were fireworks going off and outside I was trying to be all calm and cool and professional. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, fine. <laughs> you had great encouragement from three fantastic Doctor Who writers, Holmes, Douglas Adams and, and Bitmate. Uh, yeah, and Anthony Reid uh, was very, very good. Yeah, I'd sent yeah. a script in to him um, and he sent it back with all these penciled notes on it that were just fabulous, uh, with little pointers and things. And encouragement did well. He said, oh, this is a good hook, good way in, and all that sort of thing. And then I, there was a li- I had a line in the script about the isomet- um, isomorphic controls on the TARDIS. And next to which she'd written, "Aha, you're a fan!" Exclamation mark. Busted. Busted. Yeah, and because uh, that that thing, it wasn't really the thing to be a fan and be writing for the show. Um, mm. uh, but lovely guy. I mean, I really appreciated that. 
Um, and as I understand it, I think it was Chris was telling me that I'd been sort of earmarked as one to watch, you know, with someone with potential, um, which was nice. Mm. So when you were um, formulating Full Circle, because you'd seen mm. the Creature from the Pit studio recording the year before. Yeah. Uh, obviously, when you met Chris Bidmead, you had to change attack from the style of the previous season to what Chris was uh, proposing for season eighteen. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't keen to do anything in the style of season seventeen. I must be honest with you. <laughs> um, no, I, again, it was all good news because we sat down for the script meeting myself and Chris and John that time in February nineteen eighty, and everything I was hearing it was just all good news. You know, it's clear that it was a different a different direction, uh, a different direction, getting back to more what the series had been doing sort of two or three years before um, and going for a, a slightly older demographic, I think, because I think I, I didn't, I, I, I hadn't really picked this up at the time, but I, I've kind of picked up since that season 17 in particular was something where I think most of the people on the show really thought they were making it for children. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people thought that's really who the audience were and they were making decisions and they were making alterations around uh this is for young children, um, and season eighteen wasn't was not going to be about that. It was going to be uh, it was going to be an, an older demographic, still with something for the kids, the kids, um, mm. but a, uh, something a little meatier as well. If you look back at season eighteen now, um, some of the the criticisms uh, that come in for that particular season is that the humour's been stripped out. Or the fun's been stripped out of it. Do you do you agree with that sentiment? No, oh, I know, no. I th- I think it just it had just been reined back, and we didn't mm. have we didn't have the TARDIS console exploding with little car horn sounds and little <laughs> boings of springs going. You know that wasn't going to yeah. happen. And um and even little thing in full circle there was the um, uh, the scene in episode four where the Doctor's facing off the 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 Marshmen and he's got Canine's head. And he puts Canine's head up to his head and he's facing them up. Well, on the floor, Tom started making barking noises, going woof, woof, woof. And that was that was stomped on by Peter Grimwood. I'm very happy to say, because I, I wasn't happy at it. And um, uh, that was just stopped. But I think the year before, that that would have been recorded and would have gone out. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, as an example of how, how things had changed in that year. So again, I was so... I, it, I am Mr. L- I've been lucky my whole life, and even that, even getting that huge break from Chris and John, um, lucky again just to be in the right place at the right time again. I think where um, it was just such a wonderful season. I thought to be part of. But in a way, you make your own luck. I mean, you, you didn't you didn't drop out of the clear blue sky as you've you know you you, you were working on your craft for a number mm. of years beforehand. So. Obviously, talent talent usually rises to the top, but as you say, I suppose you have to be in the right place at the right time for that talent to be recognised. Uh, uh, well, well, I hope so. And um, you know, and again, a lot of work needed to be done on the script. Chris did a lot of work on the script, particularly with episode four. I mean, there's some stuff again. I look back and I think, well, I'd maybe kept this and that and the other. But um, no, again, I you know, I ride my luck really, and uh, I was very lucky, and I'm extreme. I've, uh, you know, was extremely grateful to John and Chris, and I remain very, very, very grateful. In the pre-internet era, where communications were a little bit slower than what they are now, how, mm. how did you, how did you work with um, with Christopher Bidmead in terms of shaping the script? Did, was it telephone calls, letters, visits to London? How did that How did that work? All of the above. Um, 
that first, I mean, that first script meeting went on for about two or three hours, I think, and was key to actually, you know, setting it up. And I seem to remember after I got the the gig for the other three. Oh, did I? I think we had a meeting in between the first and second draft, and then we were on the phone, and then I was coming down. I mean, I came I came down to the uh, read through, and I did a couple of rewrites of scenes after that, just things we picked up in the read through. And then was writing things like the Tannoy announcements. I remember sitting in a room at the rehearsal studios in, in Acton, writing those up. So, uh, and then again, when I came, I mean, I came down to location filming and I came down for the studio filming for all of it. And again, was generally knocking around with Chris uh, when I did that um, uh, with Chris or on my own, basically. So, but in terms of structuring the script, yeah, it was mainly two or three key meetings and then. Uh, uh, I, yeah, quite a bit done on the phone. Chris Bidmate is a, is a man who's known for his strong opinions and strong views. What, what was mm-hmm. your experience of working with him? I mean, you you had your story, your idea of your story, and I'm sure from his perspective, he had a, a season to plan and, and, and build around. Uh, yeah. Was it a meeting of minds, uh, in a sense, or did, was there a bit of how much give and take was there in the whole process that you can recall? Um, yeah, I think it was. I, I, I tell you, what, my attitude has always been, and it still is now a big finish, that. Um, kind of the professional thing is you 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 know you've been asked to write a story you've been paid to write a story, um, and you want to deliver something that is what the program makers want at the end of the day whether that's TV audio whatever, um, uh, and so you you know you're always wanting to shape it towards uh, you know what people want well always you know it, it, it's you know you know it's it's coming from your imagination it's got your stamp and your identity on it. Um, uh, in television, there are obviously other creative uh, and extra creative inputs as well, and in a visual medium. But in terms of in terms of the scripts, um, just uh, yeah, especially that I got say that first script meeting where we changed the story considerably from what the storyline had been for the story called the Planet That Slept into what would become Full Circle. Um, and it was, you know, we were all just contrib- it was contributing ideas, particularly about the shape of the first episode and how Adric would fit in because Adric hadn't been part of the storyline. Um, uh, and I just remember it being very collaborative. I was surprised, even sh- a little shocked, when I re- received a copy of the third draft and there were a lot of changes in there, like I say, particularly episode four. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just really liked... What 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 Chris did with it, and uh, yeah, he has got he has got strong ideas. But I like and even you know policing. I like people who are decisive. I don't like vacillating. You know, I don't like shilly shying or whatever. I just I really like people who just make a decision. Uh, um, yeah, so I'm quite quite keen on strong ideas. Um, and I I don't I don't remember any points where particularly there's a particular rub if you like you know. Aside from your interactions with Christopher Bidmead, um, mm. you, you've also mentioned you're very grateful uh, for John Nathan Turner. Um, yeah. What did he, in terms of I suppose you know your interactions while while the script was being worked on and 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 the recording, what did he bring to the story that you can recall? How did he help shape your script if if he if he did or was he off doing other things? Uh, well, it's difficult to remember the detail, but like I said, yeah, he was in yeah. that meeting. He was in that meeting that we had. I think Chris and I met, and we had our first chat, uh, and then John came in, or we went to John's office, whatever, across the corridor, um, uh, and 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 then we we had the the meat of the meeting about where the story's going to go. It's difficult to remember the detail. One thing I do remember 
is that John had said John said that he'd seen an episode of Blake Seven. Uh, if I take it back a bit, there had been a thing in the storyline about a giant spider or giant spider, and they were really giant. They they were like, you, you know, they they would have been like four or five foot high, like the giant rat in Talons of Wenchang sort of size, you know. And um, but he said he there there'd been an episode of Blake Seven called The Harvest of Kairos that had gone out the night before or very recently. Um, and it had a giant spider-like creature in it, uh, and he said, "I don't want it." He said that it really didn't work. It didn't work. It looked awful, and I don't want anything like that. Um, so we not have the really giant spiders. So that's why we finished up with big spiders, but they're they're not huge. Uh, so that that was something, and that's a good producer's input as well. You know, in terms of managing uh, just w- where we're going to try and stretch ourselves with with special effects on a show like Doctor Who. Uh, the areas where you can let yourself down if you're just over ambitious, although it's nice that the show does stretch itself. And again, with the spiders, and then you know it was a bit of a stretch anyway. But that's something I specifically remember from John. Did you have any interactions with Barry Letts, who was uh, executive producer of season eighteen? No, I don't. Uh, I, I, I don't remember ever meeting Barry. To be honest, um, no, no. The realization of the story. I mean, it's now God, God help us. It's thirty five years since it, it aired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's your baby, effectively. You're you're the father of the story. I mean, how do you when you first saw it when it came out on television, and and to now, how do you how do you how do you view Full Circle? Well, you can't be objective about it. I'd say um, I I loved it. I I um, I, I you know at, at the very last day in the studio in the gallery, Peter Grimwood turned around to me and and said, you know, what do you think of what we've done? Is it what you thought? And I said, better, you know. And it was, it's just fantastic. I think the location filming just looks absolutely fabulous. Mm. Uh, Peter uh, Peter Grimm, the director, Max Sam at the film cameraman, just, just did such a fantastic job. And it's um, it's funny, I hadn't watched it through for a number of years uh, until um, recording the commentary. And uh, I found it really, not, not quite how I'd feel, but, but really enjoying it. I thought it was kind of layered. I thought it's nice, they're... they're there's a nice pace of reveals of the twists and the the key parts of the whole story are revealed in quite a nice way. You know, the the, the layers come off the onion in uh, in, in quite a, a very engaging way, I think. But I mean, back in the day, I just remember the thing: I sat in there and Luminel, you know, it's Doctor Who, and it's, it says by Andrew Smith, which is just at the time was you know mind blown, you know. What about Tom Baker? Apparently very difficult during this time with him and Lala uh, and their off-screen uh, romance. I, I didn't know and I didn't hear anything about the romance, I don't think, at the time. Um, uh, I didn't have that much interaction with him, to be honest with you. He was... I, I, I did meet him a few months ago. I walked in the room and made an introduction and said, I'm Andrew, I, and uh, I, I said, uh, oh, by the way, you, you, you won't remember this, but I, I actually wrote one of your TV stories back in 1980 and he put his hand to his mouth and said oh I was terribly grumpy back then <laughs> I said uh, I said uh, yes you were <laughs> and he was very sweary as well that's the one thing I tell him he, he swore a lot but um, it was the 70s all the 80s actually so. yeah I mean I th- and I think again I seem to remember on vacation that he um, uh, he, he wasn't very well actually the one time I felt kind of patronised someone came up to me in the morning of the first vacation day and said, would you mind very much if you didn't go and talk to Tom or whatever, he's not very well at all. And I remember thinking, why, why are you saying that to me? What it, um, that's, again, the one time I felt patronised was, what do you think I'm going to do? Do you think I'm going to go up and ask for his autograph or something? Um, yeah. 
but because uh, no one else was getting that, <laughs> you know, it's just me. No one else <laughs> has been broke. Could you not talk to Tom? It's just me. Uh, but that's that's the only time anything like that happened. To t- take a step back to what you were saying before about how the the realization of the story and how it was nicely paced, I was listening to uh, Missfall this afternoon in, in preparation for this, Andrew. And uh-huh. what you were saying um, about Full Circle and how everything was revealed, I, I was finding that myself listening to Missfall, where you know the, oh, the different elements were were coming through, uh, you know, nicely paced and and, and and stretched. I mean, in terms of writing. I mean, you know, I suppose you have to plan for that. I mean, how, how do you, mm. as a writer, writing a script where there's a number of elements that you have to juggle and there's the structure to be shaped and all that sort of thing, how, how do you hit those marks if that's not too nebulous a question? Well, with that, with that one, it's... Uh, I can be people listening to this who haven't heard it, so it's... it's yeah, no, I, I don't... Too, de- yeah, too detailed about it. But I knew... With that, I mean, I, I knew what was going to happen. One of the first things I, I decided... I knew what was going to happen at the end of episode two playing around with the kind of base under siege thing. I knew it was going to happen in episode two and what the what our characters were going to be doing in episode three in terms of going one place to another. Um, uh, in terms of pacing it, I think, you know, you just look at the story you've got, um, and this happens, this starts really with the storylining. Um, you, you kind of know there are different types of reveals and it could be, you know, who, who the real bad guy is or what the motivation is or who the traitor is um, in any story, you know, and um, you, you just get a feel and some experience, I think, of uh, what's what's the best time to reveal that. Um, and, and also it all joins up. And you might want to misdirect as well. So like, okay, here's, this isn't the baddie, that's the baddie. And then, but actually, that's not the real baddie, the other baddie. I, I think what it comes down to is generally you just want to keep, intro, you keep, you keep, you want to keep your reader or your listener or your viewer engaged all the way through, so maybe it's more about not having a lag, rather than being too prescriptive around timings of when reveals are. Um, so yes, yeah, I suppose again, with any kind of structure, I think you don't want to be too prescriptive about what type of thing happens at what what point in the story, because um, uh, you don't want to make things too predictable. Uh, but yeah, keeping people engaged, I think, and then. Yeah, it's just a kick. With those reveals, with those pace, with taking the layers off the onion, um, it's more of a, a, a gut feeling for a lot of it. Although I do like, with the four-parters, I do like to have a big reveal in episode three. Because uh, when I did the first Centaurans, that worked really well, I thought. And I wasn't sure about it, but then it, it went out and it, it just listening to it. Often you don't know, you can you write this and you can read the script, but you don't really know until you hear it. And um, so I've had, uh, you know, I've tried with those, with each of them, to, to have that, that big reveal in episode three. With the first on Taran, that was pitched during uh, Eric Sayward's tenure as script editor, is that right? That's right, yeah. Talk us through that and how that didn't eventuate on television. Yeah, well, that was, um, I'd written a radio, um, I mean, when I did, after I'd done Doctor Who, I did a number of things, a lot of comedy writing. Also, did a, I did a play for television with Michael Sheard and Elaine Collins, who's now Mrs. Peter Capaldi. Um, and uh, I did among other things I did a, a radio play about a marathon runner I, did, I wrote that in like 82 or 83 82 I think and um, uh, Eric had seen the script for that I think my agent had been in touch with them and they said what you know it, 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 I, I didn't I wasn't, Eric didn't approach me because I'd written Full Circle because, but because he'd read the script and he liked it this marathon runner script um, 
And so I came down. Resurrection of the Daleks was in the studio. Saw some of that. We but we went out for lunch, and he said um, he'd like me to come up with an idea for a story with Centaurans in it, featuring the Mary Celeste, which isn't in the audio of uh, the first Centaurans. Um, I came up with this idea. He liked it. Did the storyline like that? So there were some notes. Um, then I wrote a scene breakdown, which is just a scene by scene description with some snatches of dialogue of the, sh- the structure of it. And then that was that. I don't remember getting any particular notes or uh, notes or reasons why, but but um, uh, what then happened was Robert Holmes did uh, The Two Doctors. So if you're going to have a Centauran story, it's got to be Robert Holmes, hasn't it? But, um, uh, yeah, so that was that. In terms of why it didn't go, like I said, I just um, I don't remember being told anything other than, sorry, we're not going to go with this one. Doctor Who sometimes, in in, a, in an actor's career, um, especially for the viewer or the fan, is the only thing that they've ever done. And you know, a lot of everyone knows Andrew Smith for for Full Circle, Full Circle, and mm-hmm. latterly Big Finish. But by the sounds of it, you were not only were you writing for radio, but you're also doing stuff for television. I mean, just give us a little bit of a a feel for what else you you were you were writing for at that time, and, and the sort of the successes that you had. Well, there's a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot of it was taking stuff so far and no further. Because, um, but yeah, I did this. Uh, I I did this TV play with, like I say, Michael Sheard and uh, Elaine Collins, uh, and also David McHale, who was the sergeant in Tell Us of Wang, Wang Chiang. Um, the radio play called Goal. Um, the comedy work. The comedy work kept me uh, busy. Um, also did some comic strips uh, uh, as well. Sort of kids kids comic strips. Um, and there are other things, you know, commissioned for. I was going to be writing for the professionals, Ooh. and uh, mm-hmm. that was I was line. I was going to be writing for the last series, uh, and then I got a lot a letter saying, uh, "Terribly sorry, but we're cutting back the episode number uh, mm. due to budget cuts. I'm afraid uh, we won't be able to proceed with your episode." Which uh, that is an odd thing. I remember getting that letter, and in my head, I had it as I hadn't really gone very far with it. But I was going through the loft about three years ago, and I found this professional script. <laughs> oh, no, I've go. got no memory. I've got no memory of writing it, um, uh, but there it was. So oh, okay, and um, yeah. So that was, and of course, the novelisation of Full Circle. Glad you brought that up, um, Andrew. Mm. Before we exit the Hades, tell us tell us a little bit of writing the novelisation for Full Circle because um, I certainly remember reading it when I was you know younger and and that 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 cover that's you know fairly ev- yeah. evocative. Um, yeah. Tell us about tell us about how you came to, to to write it because Terence Dix at that time appeared to have a stranglehold on writing the novelizations. How did you prize it from his cold cold fingers? Uh, well, I was I was approached by the publishers who mm. said, "Can we have your permission, please, for Terence Dix to write this novel?" And I said, uh, "No, I'll do it. Thanks. Uh, I'm quite keen to do it myself." And um, uh, it was a, it, it was as straightforward as that. Um, mm. uh, so I was then asked to come up with. I don't know. Was it forty thousand? I think a forty thousand words. Yeah, it's about um, one hundred and twenty something pages. 100, about one hundred twenty pages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, funny. I mean, the, it's just come out an audiobook. I came out an audiobook. We're recording this in March twenty fifteen. The uh, the audiobook came out in January. A great reading by Matthew. Uh, Matthew Waterhouse does a great job. Um, but there's some notes on the back of that, and I hadn't been aware that actually it was a. It was an unusually high word count for a target novel at the time, and they'd actually they actually reduced the font size to get it to fit into uh, the hundred twenty pages. I said that's the first I'd heard of that in like thirty three years. <laughs> it's the first I'd heard. Well, I was quite 
pleased to hear it. What happened with I mean, Terence did some fabulous stuff. I mean, his I was rereading the Abominable Snowman book not so long ago, and that is absolutely fabulous. Wonderful piece of writing. Um, what happened in by nineteen eighty or eighty one eighty two when I've been asked to do the book? Um, uh, they'd become a little thin, and I, you know, my I I felt you know I was picking up books like the Robots of Death and being disappointed because. There just didn't seem to be any meat on them at all. It it almost seemed like just reprinting the dialogue almost. Um, And I wanted to do more than that. I really wanted to write the sort of target novel that I'd read as a kid and and that put some meat on the bone, fleshed it out a little bit, but properly represented what had been on TV as well. Um, And stood alone on its own, if you like, as, as as an exciting read. Uh, so that's what I tried to do. How long did it take to uh, write, Andrew? I've been asked this. I've been asked this fairly recently. Again, with it being out, I've been asked, and I, I don't know, couple of months, couple of months, I think. I don't even remember doing anything like an extensive rewrite or anything. Like that. Obviously, the story was set pretty much. There, there was an epilogue that I wrote that was taken out. Quite rightly, John asked it to be taken out, and that would have that was a silly thing about the. I think the starline of finishing up back in Algiers. Kind of a full circle, full circle thing, but um, timey wimey. Probably, yeah, we probably dodged a bullet on that one, but um, yeah, I'm very fond of that book. Again, I hadn't read it for over twenty years. Um, I hadn't looked at it for over twenty years, and then my when my daughter when my daughter was about five, so about seven eight years ago, um, she became aware that I'd done Doctor, and she became aware of the book, and she asked me to read that to her as a nighttime reading. And that was the first time I looked at it in over twenty years, and um, it's going through. It, I thought actually, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's quite quite pleased with my sort of twenty year old self that wrote it. It is a good book. People have actually quoted bits of the prose at me. You know, <laughs> sort of the, sort of the temporal void, and I'm at, uh, describing the Doctor as a man who has known too uh, too many people for too short a time, something like that. So I thought, oh, that's mm. good. Who wrote that? Oh, that was me. That is that is good actually. <laughs> I'm writing this down. No. <laughs> <laughs> With the BBC audio book, would you have liked to have gone back and tweaked it a little bit and embellished a little bit? Anyone who's ever written anything would always tweak. Yeah, yeah. There is some. Yeah. I mean, there's one bit I describe the doc. The doctor describes himself as a, as human, or in the prose, he's described as human. And actually, I briefly mentioned this to Michael Stevens, as the commissioning editor commissioned it. At, at, at the time just floated the idea but it, it's actually you know people really like this to be the authentic thing as the novel I thought yeah I totally get that and that was it never never brought it up again for the audio range they've actually mm. gone back and, and had different authors uh, like David Fisher went back and read Stones of Blood uh, yeah. in, in those novels yeah so mm. it's a bit surprised with that that's different I mean that's not tweaking that is that, that is full scale Ter- Terence had done the Stones of Blood and David and I've I've heard David Fisher's audiobook and I really like it. You know, it starts off with all the the, the history of the family, the the um the, the history of those families that have been around the place where the stones are leading up to. I think again, really puts me on the story. Although I th- I thought Chancey's book of Stones of Blood was okay, uh, but um uh yeah I mean I, I don't think it's been too prevalent, but yeah I I I, I yeah I I quite like seeing that. It's a it's a different thing from seeing right. Here's a book that's been published and do you want to just go back and change the odd paragraph here and there whatever so if terence dix uh, didn't couldn't do it or or something mm. else like that would have been another author you would have been happy to hand over full circle if uh, if you were unav- unavailable to do it 
I wouldn't have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I'd been unable to do it, I'd if I'd been unable to do it, I'd probably have said, "Can you wait?" Because uh, mm. I really wanted to do it, and I mm. I don't know. No, actually, no. If I hadn't done it, I'd have been I'd be happy for chance to do it. You know, um, yeah, definitely. I'd have said, "Yeah, like chance to do it." You know, the the, the you know the the grandmaster of the books. Like I said, I thought they'd become a little bit thin by that point. Um, yeah. But but still, I would have been happy for him to do it for any reason. I'd been unable. Mm. Um, but I, I was pretty determined to do it. And what was nice, actually, after that, there was, it seemed a lot of the other guys uh, uh, decided to, to do theirs as well. You know, Stephen Gallagher, right, right John Lydecker, did, uh, did some cracking stuff. And Chris wrote his, uh, I mean, I think particularly his, his Castro Alva novel is excellent uh, and a really, really good audio. It really, really works well as, as a prose piece. During that sort of middle period where Terence Sticks was writing them all, or lots of them, I'm, I'm just surprised mm. that they didn't get the scriptwriters to come in because they would know their story more intimately and sort of, I suppose, bring more to it than you know a simple rewrite of the script. But um, they did that, as you say, they did that later on, and, that, and, the, and the, the range improved immeasurably. As I understand it, um, and I had discussed this with him briefly actually, but um, I think Terence started. Terence got into doing the books because he, he was a script editor at the time of the books started. And most of the writers of the, the show at the time weren't interested or, or uh, in, in, in doing the novels or weren't comfortable doing prose. Robert Holmes, uh, certainly at that time, wasn't, didn't want to, do, didn't feel comfortable with it. I mean, he wrote, if you, if you read the Time Warrior novel, the prologue is written by Robert Holmes, but he started and stopped and said to Terence, look, could you take this over? Uh, yeah, he fell into, that. and then I think it just became he became the go-to guy. So again, with full circle, you know, the question to me wasn't, "Do you want to write it?" The question was, um, "Can we have your permission for Terence Nix to write it?" So if they were going to most most writers, I presume, when I just turned around and said, um, "If that's the, the approach, the approach is, uh, yes, off you go, let him do it." Now you, I mean, you're 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 right into the you're, you're writing for radio and TV, and then you sort of. Mm. You didn't drop out or disappear, but you, you pursued a different career. Well, it was um, it was something that I mean, I joined the police, and and the police is something I'd been interested in from when I was at school. Um, where the career talk from Strathclyde Police it came in, shows film and whatever. And I I just there were two that, that and the the RAF regiment I seriously considered as well. Uh, I I've since worked a lot with friends in the military, and I'm glad I didn't say that that one. But uh, but the police really really appealed to me when I was at school. Uh, and in fact, I studied law for a while because I was interested uh, after school at Glasgow University because I was interested in the police, not not a career in law. And what I felt with the writing, it, it just uh, it was one thing. I was I was worried about the security of it. I was worried about the longevity of it. I was worried about being so young with a lack of life experience. Um, I was a professional for four and a half years, and in all that time, I had a, I always had a commission. I was never without a commission. But I I'd spoken to and I'd had an exchange with Chris Bowker. We talked about it as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the lack of security of, of the job. Um, mm. So in terms of that was something that's going through my head about the writing. And at the, uh, it was also very solitary. That's the other thing that I don't know, I should have anticipated it, but I didn't. And I most of the time you're just you and your own sat in your room in your office writing away, not that much interaction with other people in a, in a professional basis. Um, and I, I didn't really like that, that solitary side of it. You know, I, I wanted interaction with others. So there's that side in terms of the writing, but also there was the pull, the very positive pull of being very interested in enjoying the police service. Um, and I thought, as I've done again with things, even within policing, when I've gone 
post it, you know, going to like specialist department or whatever, um, I thought I'll give it two years and see what I think. And I went in um, uh, to the Metropolitan Police in London. Uh, and again, I was just lu- I was lucky with my first posting and lucky with subsequent postings. Um, had a very very exciting time and finished up traveling the world with it as well, which I hadn't expected going in, you know. Um, and involved in a specialist area. I mean, people know I went into counterterrorism. Um, uh, I did that for about you know, most just about the last twenty five years of my career were in counterterrorism. That's how I finished up as well, and um, just so rewarding, so lucky, and at a time when you know the fight against counterterrorism got as real as it as it can get, mm. and to have any part of being part of a counterterrorism job stopping terrorist attacks was just phenomenally rewarding so that was that yeah and i went in the police yeah i say i went in thinking i'd give it two years and see how it goes um and loved it right from the start from training school onwards just loved it so no regrets then moving away from riding into a, a no no that's it and again it was a the bills and fed the family yeah 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 it, yeah it worked out very well and uh and it was funny i mean i was always still writing for myself and and whatever um, it wasn't really until I went, got, got. It's funny I was talking to Chris when we got together to do the commentary for the DVD with Matthew, and he's saying, "Don't you miss it?" And, and I said, "Well, funny, it's actually being back in this environment again, where it's you and me and Matthew and 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 the guys in the studio, and we're sort of reminiscing about it and talking about again the writing thing. You know, I am kind of feeling a little bit homesick for that kind of thing. But as it turned out, that experience wasn't, you know, it wasn't too far from getting back into that. I'd always intended." to look at getting back into writing professionally when I retired anyway. Um, but as it happened, Big Finish came along a few years before I retired, uh, and that has been, again, I can't just, I'm so lucky, but it, it's been such a such fun to do, and also has just introduced this new kind of social circle, new friends uh, that I've made. They're just some uh, lovely, lovely people associated with Big Finish, you know, and with Doctor Who. It's that mm. Doctor Who is that wonderful, happy, wonderful large family that sort of uh, embraces its own, and I suppose you can be away for you know x number of years, but people still remember you and your contribution, and and when you come back, you you've been well, you, you're welcome back into the fold, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, my, my currency is limited. I, you know, I had that one show back in 1980. What is nice is now to have written some stuff for Big Finish that that's been well received. Um, and I think if people were asking me to go along to things now, just based on something from thirty-five years ago, I'd I'd be a little embarrassed about it. But no, there is this added thing of, you know, I've done, I I think about ten or eleven stories that are actually out there now, and I've, there's another four or so at the moment in the pipeline. Um, uh, so again, you know, I'm not just signing full circle novels and DVDs, <laughs> but I've got but. Actual, you know, the CD covers and that sort of thing as well. Tell us about coming back to Doctor Who via Big Finish. Uh, who made the first approach? Was it, was it? How did you? How did you get back into, you know, writing and writing for Doctor Who then? Well, I was uh, the DVD had come out. I think I might get. The, am I going to get the year wrong? I think it was January two thousand and nine. Is that right? Or was it two thousand ten? But anyway, the DVD East Space Trilogy DVD came out, and in May of that year. Um, I, I was invited to my, my first Doctor Who convention in 30-odd years in Glasgow, the Army of Guests. And 
was having lunch and Nick Briggs came over and said, could, could we have a word later? And then I had a word with um, David Richardson, uh, who, I, you know, do I know about Big Finish? I said, do I know about Big Finish? I've been with you since the start, mate. <laughs> uh, but um, had a huge Big Finish collection. And um, uh, and he asked about First and Tarns and if I might be interested in adapting it. And I said, I don't know if the BBC would be keen in doing that because it's Origins of the St. Tarns. Um, uh, but yeah, I left it. Yeah, I was. I, I'd be very interested in in writing for Big Finish, and then about two months later, I got a message from David. Would I like to write a companion chronicle set in East Base featuring uh, Lala Ward's Romana? Um, and I said yes, and I went into feeling very nervous. I must admit, very nervous on that one, um, as I was indeed. Yeah, with First and Tyrants as well, actually, about how it'd be, how the script initially would be received, how the idea would be received, then the script, and then. When it when it went out, and and that was that, and then I then I was asked to do more, and it was as simple as that. So and then coming back to sort of full timeish writing, I mean, you you had 25, 25, 30 years of you know in air quotes mm. life experience. How did do you, how do you mm. think that impacted on your writing, if at all? Did it change the way or the topics you how you how you approached it or? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I. Um, I'd have been, the, 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 there have been things that I've, I've seen and experienced in my police career that have definitely been included in stories um, that's, uh, that I've written for Big Finish. Um, uh, and and I get policing as a job that, that it does shape you, that it does affect you and does expose you to, to just different kinds of human experience, I think, that not many people get to see unless unless you're in something like I don't know social services or something because you see just like every level of society, um, and you you see people at their the very worst and the very very best, um, uh, you know I've I've, I've, been, I've been alongside some heroes in my time really both in police and in the public as well just fantastic, um, but also as an inkling you know I was quite you know I was quite close to some government departments as well and had ideas about. You know how that sort of thing works, um, and this is also you know if you, you, you some of these things lend themselves particularly well to certain aspects of of writing for Doctor Who, um, when you've got you know threats to life and some large scale threats and that sort of thing and officials and military or paramilitary elements to stories um, and even policing. You know I I, I wrote an episode of uh, the first series of Survivors on audio for Big Finish. Which is one of my favourite things to work on, and um, uh, I had a, a you know a police sergeant character in that, uh, who um, you know I was, I was I was very pleased to do that. Obviously, directly influenced by uh, what I've been doing for the previous thirty years. I know my dad used to watch the Bell. He used to see uh, Inspector Brownlow, and he used yeah. to say, "I used to I used to work with guys like that." So I I watched the Bell when it started. I I. I developed something of an anathema to policing pro most policing programs, but uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you that actually, but, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I found no, I found it yeah pretty accurate. I remember the first episodes, they'd have the station office and they'd have binders, and the contents of the binders would be written they'd have it written in tipex on the side. I thought that is so that's such a lovely little touch of just what you get in a police station office. Um, yeah, yeah it's funny. I was speaking to Stephen Greenhorn uh, one time, who of course wrote for the new series wrote the doctor's daughter and the lazarus experiment and he's writing for the bill and um uh we're talking about policing thing and and fun and he would get he said he got like the instruction manuals from hendon to uh 
to, to bone up on. And funny, I said actually, I said I've been, I haven't, I've, I worked at Scotland Yard most of my time. I did, uh, you know, I've worked out of a police station since nineteen ninety four, and you're you're probably more up to speed with current policing practices than I am. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Would you like to write for a police drama now? Yeah, well, well, I mean, I'm putting some ideas together for things of my own, and and that's an mm. area that I think, you know, obviously, I'm I'm probably pretty well placed to write about. Yes, yes, is a short answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, because I know it, and I think, and I think it's I can bring something different. I mean, there are very, very few police series that I can comfortably watch without, mm. at some point, saying, "Oh, for goodness' sake." And and the all the, the, for goodness sake usually comes when someone's doing something highly illegal, or mm. or immoral or unethical, mm. and and it just annoys me that people think, and even that someone watching at home might think, is is you know is that really something you think would happen? I say that to my wife all the time. My wife has nothing to do with policing, never has been, but we'll be watching something, and a number of times I'll turn around and say, "Do you seriously? Do you think that could seriously happen?" <laughs> yeah, you know. it is worrying that our our view of police work or medical, or, you know, medical dramas is how those professions work is coloured by what we watch on television. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, most of the cop shows all focus on, you know, most of them focus on police corruption, which I'm sure does happen, but a very small uh, percentage. Yeah, I investigated some serious corruption in my time. Um, uh, funny enough, I follow terrorists around, and it's professional. You, you follow some bent police officers around, and it has your back teeth grind, grinding. It really does. Then mm. you're following a, a colleague who's basically selling out their colleagues. You know. Yeah. Do you ever watch Line of Duty? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Move <laughs> <laughs> <Sleep> on. Move <laughs> on. I thought it was a great show, actually. I like the first series. I like the first series. The second series. Had. I I know the Met said uh, they wouldn't help, and that and yeah. that doesn't help. There, there there was quite a high count of oh for goodness sake, <laughs> 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 including as an example as an example. Well, well, first we get the DI who gets charged and sent to prison on the strength of she made a phone call without to a hospital without anyone actually kind of looking into it, um, mm. and then she's sent to prison incommunicado, and you just think again I say my well. The, how she's sent incommunicado, but everyone in the prison knows that she's a police yeah. officer. So she's not incommunicado. Anyone in there is, is they're all budget. They're all villains. Yes. Uh, so, so it's kind of like engaged brain. This would not. This couldn't practically happen. You know, you you get arrested. You get you can get kept in a police station incommunicado, but you mm. cannot you cannot be charged and sent to prison. <laughs> as an example, as an example. But, but there are other things. But um, but I know. It, I mean, it did really well. Jed Mercurio. You know, and he he obviously was getting some help research, but there was a thing in, you know, in the first series, I remember there's a thing where um, there's a, a an experienced police officer and a probationer uh, yes. walking through a block of flats with some balconies, and they turn mm. a corner, and there's uh, a kid who's like a druggie or something sees them, runs away, and the probationer runs after him, and the experienced police officer says to the probationer, "Stop, stop, stop! You haven't done your risk assessment." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, for goodness' sake. But I know why that ha- and I know why that happened, and I know that um, what's probably happened there is Jed Mercurio, or probably probably Jed, has uh, been told about something called a dynamic risk assessment, which is what police officer. This is a, it's come into the language in the last sort of fifteen twenty years, and the dynamic risk assessment is just very quickly in your head thinking, if 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 I do this, is it going to finish up making the situation worse? In other words. 
uh, if I run into this crowd of six Neds with baseball bats, is that a good idea? But it's what mm-hmm. you used to do. Before you called it a dynamic risk assessment, you did it anyway, and most times you'd run into the guys with the baseball bats anyway because it's your job. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, th- I think you said about the dynamic risk assessment, but the idea that you're a police officer, someone sees you and runs away and you stop, what are you going to get out of your book and write around your risk assessment and post it and then run after them? You know. In the next year or two, Andrew, we, we'd be expecting from you um, a compelling drama and correct policing on, on the television. Would that be right? <laughs> well, who knows? Well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, fair enough. And often, you know, maybe, you know, having said that, no, it's not to say that I think that um, policing needs to be portrayed absolutely accurately. It doesn't. And in fact, some of that would, uh, it'd be that well, some of it would be too expensive. There'd be too many people. Um, uh, you use dramatic license, um, but everything has to be logical. I think mm. you know. Um, uh, there's something else I was going to say there, and I and, and I can't think. But um, so I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> Just to go back to writing mm. for Big Finish, what's the approach that? Um... Did you find that they take Andrew in terms of you know again writing and shaping a script? Is it a, a very collaborative process? I mean, are you in constant communication during the during the script writing process? Yeah, I mean, what well, in terms of constant, um, it'll be how it tends to work is um, I mean the stuff the stuff I've done none of it has been me saying I've got an idea which I like that it's I've, I've been asked to do something and then I will um, uh, although what it might be it'd be something like do you want to do something. Say, say, like when I was asked to do the, the East Space trilogy, I then came up with four or five kind of one or two paragraph ideas, and David, David Richardson would then say, actually, can we have that one, please? And that happened with the Vuard and other ones as well. Um, and then from that, I would write a two page storyline, and we might do another draft of that, might do another draft after that. But when the storyline is right, that then goes off to Cardiff, and then it comes back, and then I'd be commissioned to write the script. Um, while I'm writing the script, some uh, there have been sometimes writing the script that I will uh, speak or send an email to David or usually the script editor, whoever that might be. Uh, there's more of that if I'm working at something like Survivors, and I'm uh, as as you may know, I'm working on Unit Extinction at the moment, which mm. is the first new series tie-in the Big Finish uh, are doing with Gemma Redgrave as Kate Stewart, and with that I've been on uh, so that's being written I'm doing two episodes Matt Fitton's doing two episodes so on that Matt and I were talking to each other uh, quite a bit and we'd be on the phone um, uh, and also I'd be on to Ken and sometimes it'd be an email but Ken Ken Bentley is the script editor as well as the director for this and um, with him again we we spoken on the phone a few times as well just trying things out for like consistency and and if I'm thinking of doing something that I, that, that, uh, I think it's something if, if if I commit to early in the script, there'll be some little ripples for the rest of the script. So I just let's make sure we're happy doing that or treating this character in a certain way or whatever. Um, so there's that. But um, uh, the main engagement points are write the script, send it in, and get the notes back on the um, the first draft, going to at least a second draft, maybe a third one. And that's it. You know, the most most of it been done by email uh, rather than. Uh, interaction does the British in terms of uh, audio audio plays is there still a, a strong um, presence of, of, of audio plays or radio plays in Britain on the on the radio yeah I mean radio is a, is, is and always has been a big thing uh, in the UK with the BBC BBC radio BBC radio drama um, uh, has 
a very strong audience and uh, and a very strong appeal. Um, mm. You know, and again, that that marathon runner script I, I wrote was for BBC Radio, uh, and audio audio books uh, as well. Yeah, it seemed to have a, a a really good audience. Obviously, these days, you know, we got iPods and iPads and Bluetooth in your cars and um, uh, all, you know all that. So all these things that make it so much easier to listen to uh, audiobooks uh, and audio dramas on the go. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know the figures, but I think it's quite a strong market. To your knowledge, is Big Finish one of the few uh, private businesses or commercial concerns that are, have a large radio or audio play output? Is it, is it just the BBC and then there's... You know, other smaller organisations. No, it's also you got Audio Go, but the, but there are companies that, that contribute things to um, uh, Audio Go and others. Um, I'm at the limit of my knowledge with that answer. Mm. <laughs> no, that's right. I'm just curious because I know yeah, here in Australia, yeah. um, radio in terms of radio plays. From my limited experience, there's there's one government-run radio station here that does uh, audio drama, and that's that's basically it from what I know. Mm. And I've known from you know just my observations over the years that radio mm. plays or radio has been very very strong in the UK. Uh, yeah. It's just interesting to see that, that the big finish has sort of tapped into that in a way, and they've come up with a very successful business model, I suppose. Yeah, and I think uh, I mean in the UK in terms of public radio public radio drama, the BBC is almost a monopoly on that. But there are mm. companies that that make products for the BBC and and, uh, and Big Finish has done that you know the Paul McGann series back in I think 2006 that went out on BBC Radio 7 and uh, and there have been other you know titles that Big Finish have made for uh, for CD CD slash cassette back in the day that have, that have been broadcast on the BBC as well uh, I mean you do get other you do get other I mean obviously the publishers uh, create the audio audio books as opposed to audio dramas Create audio books of, of of their books, like Random House, uh, and uh, and everyone you know creates their own audio books. And uh, what was it like writing for Survivors, um, Andrew? Because uh, it's not that it's outside your wheelhouse mm. of, of Doctor Who, but I mean, it's Survivors. Even though it's a post-apocalyptic sort of setting, it is more of a mm. straight drama. Um, how did you find? How did you find sort of changing gears in a sense and and, and writing uh, for Survivors? Well, first of all, I loved it. Um, it was I was really, really pleased to be asked to do it. Uh, partly because I I remember the series from broadcast, and partly because it was that that real that kind of real people, real situation. I mean, it it it's it's not a real situation, but it's but it's a plausible situation of a, a plague that's wiped out ninety nine point nine percent of the population. Um, uh, so you you got. It, you know, it's a situation again, just real characters, um, and I, I loved it, and I, I you know, it's um, among, if not my, my favorite of of the things that I've done, to not just what the product was, but actually the experience of doing it. Did you watch a television remake a couple of years ago? I, I, I saw a couple of episodes. I did. I deliberately didn't revisit that when I was writing. Uh, survivors and I went I, I, I've had it's one of those I had the series on, on box set uh, certainly the first series uh, for a few years just hadn't got around to watching it and then I watched a couple of it, first couple of episodes and then moved on uh, it was it was okay I mean I, I, I may well go back to it but um, it mm. didn't engage me the way that the original series did the, the original series is just totally engaging and uh, compelling <laughs> 
So, Andrew, you're well known for uh, your script writing, and of course, you you, you did one uh, well, uh, full circle the novelization. But you've you've also contributed to the charity anthology Seasons of War. Yeah, yeah. How did you how did you approach doing that? Given that there we had you know not much screen time for the War Doctor, how did you how did you approach that sort of brief? The basis of the story was something I'd come up with for an, an, another story I was going to write for another anthology, and it finished, I, I didn't have the time to do that. Um, so I went back to it and change, changed it quite a bit, this idea of a world where you got people with these golden eyes and it turns out that, that you, it's kind of a, a different kind of invasion. Um, but in ter- terms of the character, um, oof, again, again, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think back. I know I had a look at I had George Mann's book, uh, the uh, the Engines of War, mm-hmm. which is a, the uh, the War Doctor book, and I I I had a look at that just in terms of seeing how he present the Doctor. You know this character who doesn't really use the name of the Doctor, but but then found, you know from that that the Doctor was still a term that's being being used in the in the prose, um, uh, and then just yeah rewatched Day of the Doctor, making some notes. Um, uh, and yeah, just drew up kind of some bullet points about the man, really, and um, and what made him different. Um, and of course, he is still basically the Doctor, with with John Hurt's face. Uh, um, and uh, and trouble obviously looked at Night of the Doctor as well, for um, any clues that that you know that that would give. Um, and then and then just went for it, really. Would you ever consider making the leap into prose, or are you quite happy to stick with uh, radio and television? Oh no, I loved it. I mean, that's again one of the, you know I um, one of the things that I mean it's a really good cause, the Caldwell Children, um, that the Seasons of War was uh, written for. But also, I, 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 prose is actually one of my favourite things, um, and I would absolutely love to do more prose. Yeah, yeah. What do you read for entertainment in terms of prose? One thing, one thing is nice. But having having actually retired from the police last year, I actually find I've I've got this thing called a little bit of free time. Uh, because it had got I mean it it had got almost too much uh, in terms of I was doing a very demanding day job and then almost every evening and every weekend you know I was writing and and loving doing that but there there was very little free time and I you know people the friends had almost forgotten I existed because you know my you know there'd be my wife and kids would be visiting someone at the weekend. Saying, no, I've got to stay behind. I've got to, got to write this." So, and I hadn't been doing. I, I I was a voracious reader, and then I drifted away from that with having to sp- spend my free time doing this. So I kind of come back to it, and things I like to read. It's it's funny. It, it, it's quite a mix. And funny enough, I just recently I've just been revisiting um, the Alistair MacLean novels, uh, or a couple of them that I used to read as a kid. You know, Weary Eagles Dare and uh, oh, Ice yeah. Station Zebra. Uh, and again, looking at him now, you know, kind of more of a writer's head on how economical he is with his storytelling. He'd been a teacher at my school before my time, um, and I, uh, I just loved his adventure stories as a as a kid. Some of the first novels that I read. And apart from that, um, not much sci-fi and fantasy. I must have never really been a great one for sci-fi and fantasy, other than the Doctor Who side of things. And there's a couple. I mean, I mean, this is I mean, reading them, but I've also been involved in advising on them as well. Paul Cornell's. Um, uh, books, uh, London Falling. Oh, the London. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, and, and Severed Streets. Yeah, and dipping in, uh, dipping in and out of things. Again, I'm struggling to think now because again, just reading the Alice McLean stuff. But again, having come back to it, the the reading uh, 
side of things is something that, that um, yeah, I'm just glad to have more time to do now. When you're not watching police dramas, what about television and films do you uh, particularly enjoy watching? I like a thriller. I don't, again, I don't mind things that got police to them, you know. There's just <laughs> yeah. certain, certain ones are just... Usually if something... I'll tell you what, usually if, if a police drama comes up and it says, this is going to be really authentic, and I spend 10 minutes looking at it, I think, not authentic enough, bye. But um, uh, what, what's, what's really grabbed me, I think... Uh, actually, I'll give you a good example. Inspector Morse, I've always loved Inspector Morse. And you mm. couldn't get anything that's further away from real policing than that, where you've got a, you know, a chief inspector and a sergeant solving all these murders almost single-handedly, when in fact it would be a, you know, a major inquiry team, uh, a major inquiry pool with um, you know, so many people involved in it. And if people kept dying, he'd be taken off the job pretty quickly. <laughs> totally ineffective. It's like midsummer murders, isn't it? Yeah, well, you get you get a review, you get a murder. The SI, he'd be the SIO, the senior investigating officer. There'd be a review with it after a month, mm. uh, and I tell you, if the, if the reviewing officer would be another SIO comes in and looks at that and finds, hang on, that guy died, and then she died, and then he died. Then <laughs> you go back, you, you go Morse, you're back to traffic. But um, and Inspector Barnaby, you're on your ass as well. Again, there's all these. I don't know what they are, but. Um, I like I I I'm kind of a box set watcher. There's very little I watch as it goes out, um, mm. but you know it's pretty diverse. I mean, I got into Breaking Bad last year and just devoured the whole thing. Oh yeah, so I'd, I'd, great show. I'd seen people raving about it on Twitter when it finished, um, and I thought I might try this out. You know, so I got a box set of the first three series, and I just couldn't stop watching it. I just yeah. could not stop watching it. It was. Uh, uh, fantastic television and interesting again looking at the process of how they put that together and the writer's room that they run for it and Vin, you know how Vince Gilligan pulls it together mm. the episodes and standalone episodes and that like the fly episode which is basically yeah. Walter White trying to find this fly that's in the drugs factory and potentially could contaminate the drug um, wonderful wonderful stuff Game of Thrones that's another thing as uncomfortable as it can be to watch, I mean, especially in, you know, there's that that running torture theme in series three was particularly uncomfortable to watch. I mean, just just on that point, do you find it hard to disassociate yourself from examining what you're reading or watching, for you know, uh, how, how the writers structure and 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 shape their scripts, or uh, or do you are you able to sort of sit there and immerse yourself in, in what you're watching or reading? I'm pretty much immersed in it. I mean, I think you do. If 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 you write yourself, you you will inevitably be a little more analytical, um, and in an appreciative way as well. Or even you know you're watching, you know if you're watching stuff you really enjoy. Breaking Bad's an example of that. You you might well think you know start looking for themes and uh, and structural points or whatever or question. You know this is really engaging and why is it particularly engaging? You know. Uh, Oh, I must admit, actually, because I rave about this to everyone I can, talking about policing stories, but Happy Valley, uh, yes. which was out last year. Now, that is something, if, if you read a description of it, it's about you know, Sarah Lancashire playing this uniformed sergeant in, in the, the Yorkshire Valleys, and you'd think it'd be a, another heartbeat or something. And it's actually the mm. best drama, I think, has been on telly in years. Absolutely fascinating. Written by Sally Wainwright. I'm tracking down more of her stuff now, and de- and I'm rewatching that. Um, I get with her very much an analytical head on now, actually, because um, I do think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and and the policing, 
and it's pretty accurate. I mean, there's a couple, you know, there are there are always going to be things again if you actually do the job. You're going to think, well, that's not quite right. But it do, again, it doesn't need to be quite right, and it, but but it is actually the accuracy level on that is very very high, um, and um, and I, I think Sally actually has there's a, a a DI or DCI who actually advises her on all all these things. Again, and Scott and Bailey she does as well, and um, uh, yes, that is something that um, I absolutely loved, and I, that is again a, obviously a very very much a policing drama. Actually, just just before I, I, I put my f- final final question, Andrew, does in terms of um, do the police in the UK have a, a relationship with uh, production houses in terms of you know advising on um, on how to put together a criminal drama or a police drama, or are they just you know are people sort of hired uh, in their quiet time and their private time? No, I mean I, I mean there is a degree of it that can go on if you like um, uh, on an informal basis, as mm. you know with me advising Paul Cannell. Yeah. On his books, um, but but there's a more structured side to it as well. I know Ben Aronovich, I'll speak to him. Uh, uh, there is a there is a there is a scheme. Certainly in the Met Police, there there is a cadre of uh, people who work in particularly specialisms, um, specialist areas of policing, who make themselves available to advise production companies, uh, and that's done that's done for a fee to the Metropolitan Police. Okay. Um, uh, they they just keep a role. So if you want to know about you know river policing, there'll be someone on the river uh, who, who can talk to you. Counter terrorism not so easy to get advice on, but you know, um, and I think that's where Jed Mercurial fell down uh, because his story opened his first series opened with a counter terrorism raid, um, uh, and I think as I understand it, just from seeing an interview with Jed Mercurial, I think it was an issue with the Met saying, well, that isn't how a counter terrorism raid would be conducted. That isn't what would happen. Blah blah blah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, so there's a, there is a formal setup for people getting advice, um, uh, and uh, the, the, yeah, there's also the the informal thing, like I said, that I've done with Paul. If you were allowed to take any Doctor Who story and do another draft of it to make it better, which one would you pick, Andrew? Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Excluding full circle. Oh, no, you asked. If you're allowed to take it. No, no, no. <laughs> Very diplomatic, Andrew. But I could to make it better. I I can't say make it better. No, 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 no. I make it better. No. I, all I I can I can never guarantee. I'd never say I'd make anything better. I'd make something different. And but there isn't there isn't anything. Not even underwater menace. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. It would be a shame if that. It would be a shame if there had been an episode of that I never found. Yeah. But I no, I had I had the underwater. I I listened to the audio of the underwater menace first time, or first time in years, a couple of years ago, and I just thought, dear oh dear. But uh, yeah, yeah, that my that's my yeah. view. There we go. <laughs> my final question, Andrew. Then is I mean, you've now got all this time on your hands. What in terms of writing anyway? What 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 does what does the future bring for Andrew Smith in terms of his writing career? At the moment, I haven't got a lot to say in my hands because of the writing, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I finished and straight away I was I was involved in four things uh, for Big Finish. Uh, three of those are just just about finishing now. I'm starting another one, um, but I'm getting I'm getting a position now where where again I have got uh, time to start doing what what I also want to do in tandem is like kind of develop my own projects I can take to other people uh, and. Uh, there's a couple of things as well where I've been asked to provide uh, pitches 
for people for various things mm-hmm. I can't say too too much more about it, but it's, uh but um so I'm gonna get time where I can devote a bit more time to those. And I've got some different kinds of writing that I wanna try as well. Um quite quite keen to try comic strip writing actually. Um I'm I'm I am this is again in the last few years I've become a quite a big fan of graphic novels. Um uh, through Sandman, uh, The Watchmen, and uh, mm. various things, um, and I find that that's a really interesting way of uh, medium for storytelling. Uh, offers some real, real possibilities, but um, yeah, just you know, just just as one thing. Fantastic. But, um, but yeah, but it's nice, you know. And I don't know; no one owes me a living, and you know. Um, uh, I don't know. Big Finish could stop using me any, you know, whenever. And um, uh, but I just uh, my thing. I just you know keep keep writing, and hopefully people will want to read it or see it or hear it. Um, and hopefully continue having fun doing it as well. Before we go, Andrew, we'd like to try a bit of an experiment on you, if you don't mind. Oh, yes. We have a, a new segment I've been developing in the background, and I'm calling it uh, Who Knows. Who Knows, yes. Can you put in a word for me at Big Finish Towers about my Tom Baker impression? Yeah, I've got a word for it. Yeah, I'll put it in. <laughs> <laughs> Without the F-bomb at the beginning of it, Yes. <laughs> Let me, let me, okay, no, sorry, sorry. It's, it's very unfair of me to do that without hearing your Tom Baker impression. Go on. Ah. <laughs> was that uncanny? That's one word for it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, sorry, was that it? Was that it? <laughs> Seriously? Oh, you put me off now. <laughs> oh, I was very grumpy. I was very grumpy back then. Anyway, yes. Mm. I was very grumpy. The back quiz, then. Mark, the quiz. Basically, the guest, which is you, uh, has to identify the Doctor Who story in question based on comments left on YouTube. This should be very, very simple, Andrew. I've picked out eight. Yeah, go. oh, yes, yes. Go on, then. So, yeah. okay, okay, so I'll hit you with the first right. one. I think he should just kill good old Alpha. No trial, just off him. The voice annoys the hell out of me, and he wears a curtain for a dress as not to expose his penile-shaped head-torso combo. Right, Curse of Peladon. There's two choices here, Andrew. <laughs> the Curse of Peladon. Nearly close. It was actually the Monster of Peladon. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. We'll give him that. No, no, or maybe a half. Okay, I'll give you a half one then. Mm. Uh, the next one is, Adric is a effing legend. I do agree with the fact that we hate Tegan. After Snake Dance, where she gets possessed for the second time, she becomes a nervous wreck. I don't like her that way. So Tegan's first series, cool, second, bad. It also marks the first appearance of the male companion, Adric, played by Matthew Wardhouse. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> well, talking about Tegan... <laughs> Well, unless it's a general Section 18 thing, but it must be full circle, yeah? If you didn't get that... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah, okay, absolutely. Right. It's, it's full circle. Oh, yeah. right, right. Look, these are, these, are, these are comments on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I'm just reading them out verbatim. Yeah, so, so they don't need to bear any yeah. relation to reality. Yeah. That's one and a yeah, half so far. Yeah. The Doctor, the oncoming storm, the saviour of worlds and galaxies, killed by three gang members and an anaesthetic. Please, BBC, keep the Americans away from Doctor Who. The TV movie. You're on a roll. Uh, Here's the next one. Right. Amazing, the snow melted really fast. 
Seeds of Doom? Close. It was Time Flight. <laughs> uh, it was Time Flight. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it was That's... snowing at Heathrow when they filmed. Yeah, yeah, that was a bit unfair. That was the, the comment verbatim. Uh, so, right, right. Wendy Pabry's bottom. Enough said. The main rover. <laughs> no, 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 not the main rover. No, um, no, not no, the main rover. Go, go, go with that third rover. No, 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 go with the main rover. Yeah. Yes, well done. Just, Fantastic. Yeah. We've all got that burnt into our memory. Another one is the look on the fifth doctor's face when the brown-haired guy, sorry, I don't watch old who, it's Probs Adric, said that Romana is gone, though. Right, the look... Um, the fifth doctor's uh, I'm going to face. say the oh the fifth doctor's face. Uh, oh, uh, Casha Well done, yeah. Andrew. You're on the roll. And I haven't given these questions or answers out to Andrew at all. He's no, that's about the conversation having in the TARDIS, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yes. Here's another one. Female YouTubers, if you have a blonde boyfriend, then be careful because he might transform into a random guy. You never meet with a random coloured coat and attack you because he believes in fairies. Trust me, this happened quite a few more times than you think. The twin dilemma. I'm going to have to make these harder next time. <laughs> and the last one, Andrew, you're, you're on a roll here. Seems like both he died, that body died, but he didn't want to die because he liked the body and he can't go to a million people in one second and say, hey, I've got to regenerate. So he doesn't want to go. The end of time. Fantastic, Andrew. Cool. Well done. Yeah, oh, nice. For a prize, you can have my copy of the Full Circle novelization. If I can send it over to you, and if you can sign it and send it back, that'd be <laughs> Oh, <great>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. I do like a quiz. Mm. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the uh, on 42 to Doomsday. We've, uh, we've really appreciated you spending your Sunday morning with us. Lovely to talk to you guys. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. No problem. Cheers. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.